place is now. And it's forever. Ghost of my life. chapter in this the 2000s british electronica podcast we're here again i'm steven and this is marlo and we are here as your hosts for lost futures a mark fisher podcast we're here today to talk about the caretaker yeah and a very exciting ambient musician who was pretty close to mark fisher so yeah they actually were friends as told by the first chapter that we're going to get into which is literal liner notes that mark wrote yeah uh the caretaker's first album yeah the first essay is actually the sleeve notes what you just heard the 2005 theoretically pure antigrade amnesia his fourth album yeah fourth album One, two, three, fifth album. And uh, it's like three hours and 42 minutes long. Yeah, it was released as a six album box set. or it, There were six discs. It feels like six hours long. It could be. I think he has another album that's six hours and then another one that's nine hours. Those are his later albums. Yeah, he's a real cool guy. Real artsy type. Yeah, and they're all ambient, but the thesis for his project is he's the caretaker which is a reference to the shining the shining the wonderful 1980 movie we watched it in preparation for this basis um, for one of the best simpsons halloween special shorts <laughs> called the shining <laughs> yeah it's it's a classic everyone knows it here comes johnny next week we'll have a full episode on mark fisher discussing just the movie but first he talks about this artist which makes this album and the the thesis of this artist is he's making music that would theoretically be played well, that, that was just one of his album concepts that was previous album of his selected memories from the haunted ballroom yeah they're, they're, they all have very long which was his first album in 1999 and the idea is that these are all songs that would be played in the ballroom in the shining and this one uh the name comes from the idea of anterior grade amnesia also known as the thing from memento that of essentially because you can't form new memories you can only live in the past and the uh, basic idea is in theory these past memories just get preserved 
as your semblance of the presence. In fact, they also fade over time, as old memories do. So the theoretically pure anterior grade amnesia is this idea of this perfect encapsulation of the past forming your basis of being. It basically, he made a ontology album. Mark Fisher wrote the liner notes for it, and here we are. <laughs> and this is the section of the, the chapter in the book for hauntology, and that's why it's included here after the burial, which he also considers to be a music genre of Anyway, this album consists, as we said, of six discs. Uh, no song titles. They're all just... They're lab- labeled memory one through 66 or something. Yeah, um, so that's what it is <laughs> that this man made. Oh, and I was wrong. It's 72 tracks, not 66 tracks. Okay. Uh, he makes the distinction between antegrade and retrograde amnesia. And, uh, right, I mean, retrograde amnesia is the classic 60s sitcom. You get hit on the head. Who am I? Where am I? What's my name? Who are you people? Uh, that's retrograde amnesia. You forget all the memories up to that point, but form new memories. Anterograde amnesia, you can't form new memories, but you remember everything up to that point. Yeah, and what's the... Do you know the man who mistook his wife for a hat? Uh, yeah, that's a classic Oliver Sacks book. Uh, it put Oliver Sacks on the map as far as a popular intellectual yeah. goes. Oliver Sacks is... Probably more well-known today because of Awakenings, the movie. Oliver Sacks was involved in an experiment. There was, like, this weird fucking disease that just put people in an eternal coma. And they've been in it for, like, 30 years or some shit. Mm -hmm. And Oliver Sacks was part of a team that came up with an idea of giving them a drug that literally in some horrible dystopian tragedy, like, sci-fi bullshit, like, let them be alive for, like, two weeks and then they all slip back into it again. (laughs) Jesus. Like, I'd have to look up the details, but that is... The broad strokes of what happened. They made a movie about it. I think De Niro's in it. But that's like another thing Oliver Sacks is known for. He was on Radio Lab a bunch before he died. Mm. Um, yeah, he's one of those like dudes that NPR people read the man who mistook his wife for a head yeah. and like to talk about Oliver Sacks. I mean, um, I read it in college. I think it was something that was given out as yeah. like a short. Yeah. A as short... far as like popular shrinks go, he's better than several. <laughs> um, um, better than Peterson or Gladwell, I guess. So then he gets into the album. The theme is a homesickness for the past in his previous albums, but now it's an impossibility of the present. Which is... Yeah, that was a good quote. Um, He's saying essentially that this album is hauntological and seems to be the thesis. I, you know, I try and approach everything with a removed and intellectual gaze uh, and an open mind. Music didn't really do it for me and also I didn't listen to 74 fucking songs um, so can't really complain, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, it's spooky and 
dour like a lot of the music that mark likes like the uh like you know the shining and yeah the... yeah sure i mean i'm trying to appreciate this slightly more because he does than... mention that it's the reference of the invention of moral which is influenced by last year the Marinbad, and therefore also on the shining and in all these movies they seem to imagine a world we live in Imagine the world we live in it, where the specters of the beautiful and the damned are preserved forever. Their little gestures and banal conversations transformed by repetition into holy artifacts. That does kind of sum up The Shining, and he's kind of making the link to the music, where it seems like the music is preserved in something that doesn't quite... You can't quite remember. Like, I can't quite remember anything about the music unless it's on. Okay, so this uh, essay or uh, sleeve notes or liner notes, uh, whatever you want to call it, kind of goes into a very poetical yeah. uh, voice, I'd say, where it very much is trying to itself convey a feeling of confusion and out-of-placeness and out-of-timeness, like he's arguing the album does. Well, I think, I think he's also just trying to honor it. Like, yeah, he's yeah, trying yeah. to honor the music well, in a way also it's, that reflects I don't, the music. I mean, also, these are sleeve notes. I mean, having a poetic voice in sleeve notes is a perfectly reasonable thing that has been done in many sleeve notes because they kind of expect you to be, you know, sort of listening to the full album and sitting back on your couch and reading Reading your, the sleeve notes. Yeah, reading your sleeve notes, which are all big and shit because you got a vinyl record and it's 1974 or whatever. He uh, kind of slips in in and out of this poetic voice. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think, yeah, overall I would say like this, as far as, I mean, this is a collection of different essays from different places and you know, as far as that goes, they do often speak in sort of different voices and try and do different things. And this one, yeah, as I think you said flourish, flare. Flowery. Um, flowery. Very flowery. Yeah. The gold yeah. room in which the Scott Fitzgerald era elite forever cavort in a ceaseless whirl of wit, cocaine, and wealth is perfectly heavenly. But you know what the price of the ticket to heaven is, don't you, Jack? Don't you? It's your, it's your soul. Uh, <laughs> so he kind of slips in and out of like quoting the movie and yeah. also talking about the album in a way that yeah. I'd say reflects the dour mood of the music. I personally enjoy the music as far as something to put on if you're like at work or and you, you, you're at a computer for a long period of time and you just want to zone out for something. I think it's really good for that. To that, and then the quote I was looking for, why is it always raining in here? Or is that just the sound of the television tuned to a dead channel? Mm -hmm. Where are we? Which also I find interesting because as previous... Um, burial that that also he liked to use rain imagery yeah especially about london when he was talking yeah, about yeah i the... mean a lot of the bands he listens to there seems to be a aqueous theme <laughs> a happy theme yeah anyway so this is the dour sad electronic artist who makes gloomy rain music uh which burial also was right but this is the one who likes the shining 
This is the one that named himself after The Shining. Right. And, yeah. Uh, whereas Burial likes England or something. Well, this also has... We'll get into it for the next section, but the similar to Burial, this is also mourning the idea of the rave. Yeah, I, I would say... I mean, yeah, I guess teasing a little bit, but uh, I would say there was a very England-focused theme with Burial, like... And with Tricky, um, I mean, just, and especially with Tricky, like, with the putting him in the place of that time when Britpop existed as well, and working through that. And, and this one, yeah, I would say, Joy Division also. Well, yeah, Joy, yes. Um, <laughs> Joy Division also. Yeah, well, anything before 1990, yeah. This one, yeah, I feel like. That's not brought up as much, I guess. The other thing I want to talk about, he talks about the crackle in this again. He talks about um, the threat is no longer the deadly, sweet seduction of nostalgia. And I thought it, that was interesting because they oftentimes got accused of being very nostalgic. The, the hauntology is often conflated with nostalgia. Right. Well, th this one also, I feel like he more stridently dismisses it and kind of talks about other stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it said, um, the problem is not anymore the longing to get to the past, but the inability to get out of it. He also talks about memory a lot with it in here, too, because that's linked with getting out of the past in the context of here is creating new memories and stuff like that that requires a link to the past. And here it says, like, in this section, we were in the simulation of another mind's eye, the mottled, honeyed, slurred, and reverbed quality of the sound alerted us to the fact that this was not the object itself, but the object as it is for someone else's memory. And to me, that had a, like, yeah. it's even further distanced from this idea of, oh, we're nostalgic about our past or a past. Yeah, I just, I, I like the poetic language. I, I think that it, it gives a nice break almost from the... If this was like a grunge album in 1991, it'd be like, Hey losers, this is our stupid music. Uh, <laughs> you're dumb for listening to it. Enjoy from Kurt and the guys. <laughs> yeah, it does have you a... Know, it, it has a very much... Yeah, it's an artsy cultural theorist guy friend that he has writing his fucking liner notes for some stone dude to presumably be reading on the couch because we all listen to albums that way. Okay, we looked it up about the Beckett landscape for anybody who's reading along at home and doesn't and know what a Beckett sorry la because landscape is. We also we get that it's sad. <laughs> Uh, but frankly, I just read a sentence in which. Well, Sam Samuel Beckett is the... They don't need to be told who Samuel Beckett is. We should be embarrassed for having to look him up. Yeah, uh, I mean, all you have to know is he's late modernist, known for his dour settings, and he makes a big deal about... The Beckett landscape. I don't know. He's using it the way you'd use Dickensian, but, like, it obviously means something else. Seemingly negative, I guess. I don't know. I don't know any Beckett. Sorry, but he, he makes it specifically about uh, landmarks. Like, there are a few landmarks. 
you know, in the album, there's no names of the tracks. They just have memory one, memory two, memory three. You don't have anything going along, and it kind of puts you into this right. hazy, foggy space. Yeah, I'm space. just saying, if I was listening to a podcast and I had these two guys going, yeah, it says Dickensian. I guess it means, like, Victorian and, like, poor people or something. I, I'd be like, what the fuck, guys? So I'm just apologizing <laughs> to listen. Um... And he, he says, you extemporize stories, they call it confabulations, to make sense of the abstract shapes looming in the smoke and fog. I thought about what you said about the Silent Hill mm-hmm. uh, reference that he talks about. Yeah, 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 The fog that kind of like, what was it that you said? Uh, d- that, d- distance fog is what it's called. Distance fog where that allows for the game itself to run properly it it allows it to essentially load images without rendering them in a way that lets it run on worse hardware but when you listen to like you know the caretaker it's it's really hard not to hear the fogginess that he he creates with the that is an interesting idea of like this was an artifact of how they made games in the 90s and 2000s and I don't think there's been so much a retro move other than it being an option to turn on if your computer's shitty but I don't think there's really been a retro move to bring distance fog back in some like indie experimental game it'd be an interesting idea though yeah in the same way of the crackle and whatnot from from music at the end here he gets as you said poetic a few haunting refrains lingering in the back of your mind separates you from the desert of the real which is like a matrix line but it's also a boldriard jean boldriard and the matrix took it from boldriard and boldriard really appreciated that and said wow this is such a great representation of my work <laughs> Yeah, well, for, said the opposite. Yeah, of that for for, for those that uh, Marlo's being sarcastic, Boldriard did not like the Matrix and did not like being referenced in the Matrix, and thought that it was Plato's cave, and he was not doing Plato's cave. Yeah, no, his thing was totally different than Plato's cave. And, and so it's he your says, fault for confusing it. Oh, yeah, I mean, the Wachowskis famously did make the cast read. Um, Simulation and simulacra. Yeah, simulations and simulacra. Yeah. Then we get into the last Desert part. Of the real, baby. Then we get into the last part, um, which is interesting because it takes from that line, take care, it's a desert out there. And what I learned is that take care, he specifically does it because it's caretaker but reversed. Mm. Take care, caretake. Yeah, yeah, got it. And then it's a desert out there. And then... When Mark Fisher passed on, Caretaker made an album called Take Care, It's a Desert Out There. Um, yeah. As a honoring Mark Fisher and their symbiotic relationship. And uh, yeah, we're going to play a little bit of that and then we'll come back with the interview. I think yeah. we're, we're done here. And so... Uh, enjoy the ambience.
And we're back with Memory Disorder Interview with the Caretaker from The Wire 304, published in June of 2009. For those yanks out there, The Wire is... Not wired. Not wired, yeah. We went over what The Wire was in the previous... Yeah, but I think I might have confused it with Wired. I thought you did then as well. Okay, well... For everyone, I was like, it is not a tech okay. antigrade. The wire is NME, but like a more alternative NME. All right, cool. Yeah, it's just it's just their Rolling Stones. For the Yanks out there, it's the their Rolling Stones, but more cool. Right. Well, that's what the wire is. We've all learned something. Today. Yeah, Marlo messed it up last week. All right, so it starts out. I have always been fascinated by memory in its recall, especially where sound is concerned, writes James Kirby via email. And I thought this was funny because we were trying to figure out last week how Burial Mm -hmm. was conversing with Mark Fisher and it seemed like he was in a, a vacuum. And here it's via email, but at times it seems like they're talking a bit more conversational. So... It seemed confusing to me how this interview was conducted. Was it all three through email? Yeah, possibly. And this is uh, this is a three couple years, years after, after yeah. theoretically pure integrated amnesia comes out, and it seems like he, he comes out with a box set, and that's unclear as to what, uh, which was based no, around I think the, the box specific set is to Yeah, theoretically pure integrated amnesia. Yeah, they, yeah, they just call it a box set because it's really goddamn long and it comes in a box set. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've solved that mystery. Yeah, anyway, I mean, he talks in more detail about why it's called Tapa'a, which, I mean, we've covered. But yes, once again, it is the notion that because you can't form new memories, you have sense of presence and therefore cannot escape the past. That's why it's called it. And now uh, he's going to explain that again, but now with Jameson. Yep. And uh, this is one of the things that you've said a lot, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> mentions the Beckett landscape again, and that they're numbered and not named. And Kirby says it's a black comedy. It's almost a, a joke. Mm-hmm. That he's making this because he has a apparently has a reputation as a, of a prankster, and he does all these kind of funny things, things with his labels, like, like uh, making a seventy-two song long ambient album. Yes, very funny. It's so, a hilarious and classical joke that we're, we're all familiar with the premise of. <laughs> yeah, archaeologists think it is among the oldest jokes. Uh, Sarah's gesture <laughs> first made a 72 song long ambient album <laughs> and it's like uh, yeah no everybody's gonna get the joke we found the track listing in hieroglyph <laughs> I think he recorded uh, Lieutenant Pigeon's moldy old dole as a joke and I'm gonna bring that 
up while you say yes, something. Yes, that, that's such an obvious joke name for a musical project, considering the names of other British musical projects. Well, it's a song. I don't know why it's a joke. He makes the joke just after it appeared on the cover of The Wire under the headline, Harder, Faster, Louder. And I, I guess he butchered it. I don't... I think that's what it was. Oh, I mean, this is hilarious. The The funniest thing. I mean, I suppose the funny thing is it appeared on the cover with the words... Harder, faster, louder. Yeah, okay, that's a little funny, I guess. And I think he he released one like a like a cover of it, mm-hmm. or like a. Oh, this is the original. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, what's his version? I mean, well, who who's this then? What am I? That, that is Lieutenant Pigeon. Okay. And then... Is that like Captain Beefheart's superior officer? (laughs) We're basically, at this point, we're doing the snooker uh, commentators from Mitchell and Webb. Yes, a joke everyone gets. Yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out this fucking joke of caretakers. Uh, Anyway, so that was a fun aside. Okay, so now he gets into the Jameson. The Jameson. Because um, he talks about postmodern pastiche and how this is part of postmodern culture as an inability to focus on our own present, as though we have become incapable of achieving aesthetic representations of our own current experience. Yeah, so, I mean, through this discussion and through the reading, I'm kind of gathering... You know, Mark's general point is that Caretaker's work is sort of a presentation and plea against uh, being stuck in the past while sort of shouting we're stuck in the past. Yeah. In an entry. Like you're in the ballroom. Yeah, so it's kind of the ever-present attempt to create the new in this world that Jameson's described so verbosely and then he talks about another project the death of the rave which i mentioned earlier it kind of offsets against what burial was talking about the rave like both these artists seem to be linked in a lot of ways for mark fisher mm-hmm. as being the two that are his favorite that are hauntology the music aesthetic yeah. and they both have and a rainy they both evoke rain. They both have this idea of the rave that was this exuberant like optimism in the 90s that then crashed after 9-11 in, mm-hmm. in an American sense. But like the true like end of the party was coming, crashed down. And certainly 2008 also contributed to the end of the party. You know, the well was drying up for capitalism and in the former great empire of um, England and the party was over and what music better to soundtrack that 
party being over than dreary, ambient, and slightly more danceable, but equally as depressing, you know, drum and bass song, 72 songs for the price of one album. <laughs> Argue with your friends about which number is better than, than the other number. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah, he says, uh, the tracks sound like they are being heard from outside a club, a horribly accurate sonic metaphor, perhaps, of our current state of exile from future shocking rate of innovation that dance music achieved in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and I thought that was a poignant critique that, you know, innovation has slowed down, degenerated, almost become its own parody, I guess. At least in the 2000s, I can imagine it seeming stale to people who enjoyed greatly the drug-fueled mania of the... Yeah, we should point out Mark Fisher could have been listening to MGMT at this time. (laughs) This is a choice Mark Fisher is making. Well, because we we were listening to MGMT at this time. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) It was poppy. But he wasn't, because that wasn't wasn't his vibe at the time. It was not his vibe at all. (laughs) Nope. He probably hated MGMT, Marlo. Oh, God, did he <laughs> almost certainly ever. Or he could have been listening to Passion Pit. Yeah. Um, you know, all the fun music of 2009. But the caretaker talks about the raves and how he used to go and how it was amazing and how there were so many different genres and how it was like dance floors were like a life or death experience that ended in exaltation or whatever huge romanticization of what it means to go on a dance floor he wore an onion on his belt which was the style at the time and he says "I, i feel sorry these days for people when i go to clubs as the energy isn't there anymore uh, we have some so-called very cool clubs in Berlin, such as Watergate and Berghain, but you compare those to back in the late 80s and early 90s in Manchester, and it really is no comparison. As you said, like, Caretaker doesn't come across as, like, a very interesting interview. Far less so than Burial, I thought. Yeah. Burial stirred something in me. <laughs> well, <laughs> mockery was most of yeah, Respect. But this is... Uh, you know, what is this introducing new from the burial chapter? Because it is... We're kind of dancing around it, saying a lot of the same things in different ways. The anterior grade amnesia is an interesting point, and it kind of gets into this, like, Mark Fisher thing that Mark Fisher likes to do where he throws in a national diagnosis for society. Which is always great. And so, yeah, let's throw anterograde amnesia in as one, like Memento. It's a fresh reference. It's 2009. I mean, you saw it your freshman year at, like, your friend who was off campus. The, if, like, you older were, dude if you were of a certain age. Who lived off campus and, like, sold you weed. Uh, and you Marlo's speaking house. only about himself. Uh, one time, 
like your freshman year and or you saw like from a kid in your dorm room who had like a Chris Nolan poster up and like oh he had that like Reservoir Dogs poster with all the guys on it yeah anyway if you were Marlo and listening to this podcast then you would definitely have had that experience <laughs> yeah anyway and that's how you saw Memento for the first See, time this is your memory looking through the eyes of another memory yeah how about that anyway <laughs> So we're throwing that in there, and also it neatly then uh, will lead us into The Shining. But in terms of, you know, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. There's there's the whole literal idea of the death of the rave. This is, like, the second time we've talked about that. Yeah, burial. It's uh, probably useful to... A difference that I think you talk about is this is less British. Because, and he gets into it that he moved to Berlin, but still keeps it... Well, also, I mean, he he even, uh, he talks about, like... Oh, yeah, I liked going to shows in Manchester in the 80s and 90s, but neither him nor Mark Fisher are going on this thing that Fisher has done and had the artists have done through his representation of... And so this is the genealogy of, like, all the other musicians that came before them. That doesn't get mentioned here at all. With Goldie, it definitely did. With Tricky, it definitely did. With, um... Burial. Burial definitely did. And, like, even in Burial's, like, whole, like, Britishness, uh, it was generally a conversation in regards to the British music scene specifically and, like, specific artists, not just it was nice going to clubs in Manchester in the 80s. He does say that The Caretaker remains a project rooted in Britishness. Quote, it's also only British music which has been used as source material. A parallel for The Caretaker's excavation of pre-rock British pop is Dennis Popper's musical drama, blah, blah, blah. So he Well, does... I mean, source material in this case being what he's sampling, not, like, source material in the sense of his influences. But, yeah, sure. I just wanted to bring that yeah, up yeah, as a no, counterpoint. Fair enough, fair enough. That even though he moved to uh, Berlin, he sees himself yes. as doing a British project. Yeah, yeah, don't they all? Uh, you know, they're making, again, all kind of the same sort of music. <laughs> like, I mean, we're not suddenly going into, oh, so you do folk Americana, huh? Like, that's not a person being interviewed. Well, this is, again, like... If, the, if we the, had bluegrass Mark Fisher, I'm sure you'd hear a lot about fucking coal miners in Virginia. Um, well, to get to that, he does talk about the miners' strike. Yes, the Welsh miners' strike. Mm-hmm. The West Virginia of Britain. <laughs> but the other thing that is kind of setting up for the next article is The Shining. Mm-hmm. Uh And he gets here that the name Caretaker was taken by the role that Jack Torrance is condemned to forever play in the haunted Overlook Hotel. Here's the line, you've always been the caretaker. Torrance is told in one of the film's most chilling moments. The conceit was simple, inspired by the haunting sequences which featured the ballroom music which is played only in Jack's mind 
Kirby thought, why not make a whole album of material that might have been played in The Overlook? And that's his first... The Overlook was a club in Manchester in the late 80s. (laughs) That's the thing is he goes into this special record store that he discovers with all the... Yeah, he's sampling a bunch of ballroom music and he bought a bunch of ballroom records and takes pride in his quote-unquote research he does for each of his musical projects and you know it's an effort it's a purposeful production i'm not knocking and the other the other thing is the temporality of the music he notes is like between two wars kind of music Mm -hmm. so it kind of it got lost in the post-war in a lot of different Mm -hmm. areas he like because it's between both wars between the 20s and 30s that that era is already, you know, a lost. Mm-hmm. It's a lost world that is never going to come back. We're never going to have the conditions of the 1920s and 30s again. It's just not possible. Right, right. And so yeah, yeah. I've always been fascinated by that time period because so much that came after World War II was so radically different than mm-hmm. the Depression and 20s. But at the same time, I think you can make the argument that the 90s into the crash of the 2000s were sort of like the 20s and 30s. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things are like things. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> saying the way that they... That, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, if you're making a parallel and you're an artist in the 2009... Yeah, anyway, that was the conceit of this project. Um you're always looking back at the good times, mm-hmm. which is in the 30s. The You're looking back at the 20s, because that's when, before the crash. And in the 2000s, you're looking back in the, the 90s as the good times, because 2000s kind of sucked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny aside about going into this, the record store. Um, he has a solo project. He's also very anti-social media and Google. He doesn't trust the internet. It's very Gen X. Like He's a very on person. <laughs> he seems like he'd be a lot. <laughs> he doesn't trust the government. <laughs> he doesn't trust these modern things. He takes the name of his grandfather. He's got a lot of things that he does. <laughs> Yeah, he's done a lot of projects, he's done things, he's... And uh, he has a general honological thing that we've covered quite a lot. Well, he kind of seems like somebody of a different age, um, in a certain way. And that's the thing that the record store guy says, You were were born in the wrong era, nobody's interested in this music who is your age. Yeah, he tells this very self-congratulatory story about buying 78s in a record store and, like, you know, getting, like, praise from the record store owner because this young, handsome man is buying 78s. Which is something that happens to me, like, on a daily basis. I mean... Yeah, yeah. Whoever heard of uh, no? You look like twenty-year-old in the two thousands buying seventy-eights from a record store. You look like you're from the seventies. Enjoyable. I mean, he talks about it a great deal. That's the essay. Uh, He talks about research. The guy does seem to like put in an effort to make it. Yeah, I don't know. He he also is something of a sample artist, and he tries to be eclectic in his sample sources. And eclectic, thorough, and he does seem like a collection. Like, he's very, he seems to collect things mm-hmm. um, and seems to cherish. 
Anyway, if this is another burial where this is like a fucking world-shakingly famous guy that we're just talking about like this, sorry. <laughs> um, this is what you get when you get Yanks that are talking about yeah. Brit- British superstars over here. Yeah, this is what you get when... Also, I've never quite liked electronic music, but, you know, it's all fine. Well, we're not going to play that. We're going to play out some Al Boley. All right. And uh, we'll see you next time when we're going to talk everything The Shining. Mm-hmm,